Hey, deserving listeners, I want you to think back to the last person that you had a crush on or you were romantically attracted to them. What was it about them that made you attracted to them? Was it how they looked? Was it how they talked? Was it how they walked? Was it how they laughed? Was it how they twirled their hair or uh, took out their wallet and paid for something? What was it? Would it be obvious to the rest of us as why you were attracted to them? Or would it take some explaining from you? More precisely, what are the qualities in a human that attract you to those other humans? You know, what are the qualities that make you want to walk across that room and introduce yourself? That make you want to swipe right or left or whatever people do these days? Okay, so now that you have that person in mind or those qualities in mind, you know, think about those top things that are, attract you. Think back also to your most recent long-term relationship or the relationship that you're in right now. Why are you with that person? What is, what is it about that person that makes you want to stay with that person? If you're in a good relationship, what scientifically makes you a good match between the two of you? Can you quantify those qualities? Is it the physical attraction? Is it the communication? Is it things that you share in common? If you're anything like me, these are really tough questions to answer. I mean, I could answer them at length. If you ask me why I'm with my wife, I could talk for five months about why I'm with her. <laughs> but I'm not sure if it would be, be very scientific. You know, I'd say things like, well, you know, we're in love and or something like, you know, I, I just know that my wife is the one for me or things just feel good. <laughs> and that's fine. You know, we can have our explanations and that's our that's our stories. But what about people who are looking for their special someone and they haven't found that person yet? Can science help them find that person? If you're single out there and you're looking for someone, can science help you find that person? It's certainly not a question that a lot of people ask themselves. Surely psychology and other social sciences are interested in this question. I mean, if a scientist came along and cracked the code on whatever makes two people a good match, that scientist would rule the world. Think about it. All of us would be able to skip past all the bad dates and all the bad breakups. It'd just be this utopia. <laughs> There'd be no more reality TV shows. Well, science has looked into this question quite a lot, actually. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. The science of matchmaking. I've read hundreds of research articles and journal articles on this topic. What, you know, how can we predict if two people will be attracted to each other? And how can we predict if these two people will sustain a long-term relationship with each other? There's a lot to talk about. Let's get into it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor. I'm doing this episode because some of you wanted me to react to the TV show Married at First Sight. It's a reality TV show. I'd never heard of it before until literally just a few weeks ago. And I started watching it and reacting to it on YouTube. And in the very first episode, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the show, they, uh, they've been going for 10 seasons. And these three experts, a marriage and family therapist, a sociologist professor at University of Washington, my alma mater here in Seattle, and a minister will go over 
thousands of applications. People line up around the block. It's like American Idol. You know, people line up to to get married to someone that they've never seen. Essentially, what happens on this reality TV show is you get married to someone you've never seen or met, and you don't see them until the bride is walking down the aisle. By the way, it's all heterosexual couples, and then the show follows them as they go on their honeymoon and then move in together and actually see if they actually are a good match. And the way that they get matched is through some process that I'll describe. And as I'm watching this show, these three people, the minister, the marriage and family therapist, and the sociologist are discussing these different people. They're like, well, I think these two people should be matched up. And then another person is like, well, I don't really know if those two people are going to be a good match. And the kinds of things that they were talking about as to the arguments pro and con for why these two people would be a good match sounded extremely dubious to me. I found myself cringing as I was watching this TV show because the little that I did remember from the research on scientific matchmaking was very counter to what I was hearing these people talk about. And so in this reaction video, the very first one for Married at First Sight, I'm basically just trashing them or highly questioning their methods of scientific matchmaking. You know, they were saying things like, well, I think they are a good match because they're both very physical. He likes to jog and she likes to do yoga. Now, that should be on its face a silly comment. A lot of people exercise. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that two people exercise shouldn't be a major factor in whether or not you match two people up. For those of you who have been on bad dates in the past or have been in incompatible relationships in the past, I'm guessing you could point to a lot of surface similarities, like the fact that one person jogs and the other person does yoga, <laughs> or both of you have a car, for example. <laughs> so uh, as I was watching the show, I was like, oh my God. So what I decided to do was, you know what? I got to look into the research because if I'm going to trash this show, which I've continued to watch and, and continue to trash in a lot of ways, <laughs> not terribly so, but I uh, want to have all the research behind me. And so it gave me an opportunity for the past, I don't know, 10 days to do a deep dive into the research. I had to actually ask my library service to send me all these journal articles that weren't readily available. I read all of them. I took you know pages and pages of notes, and I've, I've boiled it down to 15 pages of notes. So let's get into it. All right. So again, let's look at let's look at the before I get into the factors as to what makes people a good match. I just want to give a, a little bit of a landscape of of some things that are happening that people are aware of. Married at first sight. I'm going to go into that. I'm also going to talk about online dating because on a lot of online dating sites claim that they have a scientific way of matching people up. In fact, one of the people on Married at First Sight, the sociologist is also involved with, I think, eHarmony or one of the other ones. I'm not sure. There's also DNA match, matchmaking services that are popular in Asia. And of course, astrology is also another way that people will match people up. So let's, let's look at the science. But first, let's talk about, about Married at First Sight and their process. For the fans of the show, they might enjoy this. Okay, so let's look at the, their method on Married at First Sight, this TV show. This is based on firsthand accounts that I've read on the internet of the matchmaking process. So take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt because I obviously ha don't have firsthand account and I haven't 
uh, had contact with the people at Married at First Sight. But from what I understand is the TV show reaches out to people over Tinder and other kinds of places. And they say, would you like to be on a reality TV show, blah, blah, blah. And then they bring them in and they measure various body dimensions, including the size of your index finger, which is a very interesting thing to do. (laughs) Why would they measure your index finger? I'm guessing either one, they have some hypothesis that the size of your index finger indicates something that helps in the matchmaking process, which is, I didn't find any research on that. Or two, they do that because they are uh, testing to see for a ring because they give you a, a wedding ring. Or three, they want to make it seem like it's this arcane scientific process and they're trying to trick everyone into thinking that it's much more rigorous when it isn't. Then they give everyone from this one person's account a 500-question survey. And this this survey has likes, dislikes, religion, political views, attractions, sexual history. So this makes sense, right? If someone likes to go va- on vacations and another person doesn't like to go on vacations, then those people probably shouldn't be matched up. If one person's a Democrat and the other person is a Republican, then maybe those two people shouldn't be matched up. So I'm guessing that's what they do. Then from the measuring of body dimensions and from the 500-question survey, they narrow down the field of thousands of people who apply to be on this show. They narrow it down to about 150 people. And then they sit down with those people and they actually interview them. And they might do a home visit, and they show this on the TV show. And from E! News online, this is uh, what they say about this process. Dr. Pepper, she's the <laughs> – so that sounds like a comical name, but that's her, that's her actual name. She's the sociologist professor from uh, University of Washington. Dr. Pepper looks for people who have, ha- who, who have a lot of ang- – oh, sorry. <laughs> Dr. Pepper looks for people who have a lot of anger or are obsessive on some issue which could signify a person that may need much more therapeutic intervention than we're able to do even in this hyper-analyzed process. There's always intuition, and then we see if it's correct or not. End of quote. So basically, this sociologist goes into the home and looks to see if there's a lot of quote-unquote anger, I don't know exactly what that means, or obsessiveness. And according to her, this would signify that the person needs therapy and uh, is probably not a good match or something. I find that to be a very interesting way of looking at things. I I don't know what she's basing that on. It certainly doesn't reflect any science that I saw. Uh, The the notion that people needing therapy would mean that there aren't going to be a good match isn't a, a slam dunk. I'll get more into that later. There's some nuance there. And then she goes on to say that they use their intuition. So this is my bone that I pick, my bone, the bone that I pick with this show is that they claim that it's scientific in a way because they have a sociology professor and a marriage and family therapist. And these people know science. They studied it. They probably did their own science. And it lends this this credibility to the show that other shows probably don't have. And they make it seem like it's scientific, but then they talk about intuition and their own opinion on things. So basically, they could be anybody. 
And the fact that someone is a sociologist doesn't necessarily mean that they're good at matchmaking, especially when, according to the things they say, don't reflect the scientific research. Anyway, I'll get more into that later. So then, after they do these interviews of the 150 contestants to get on the show, the experts pick the final couples. They, and this most recent season, they picked five couples. So they picked 10 people to be matched up. And then on the TV show, they get married without ever having seen each other before. And then the rest of the show follows them as they try to get along and see if the matchmakers actually did a good job. Apparently, the participants don't get paid. There's no monetary gain. In fact, one person online that was on the show, he said he actually had to pay a lot of money for the ancillary issues on the show. They do buy some things like the wedding dress and that sort of thing, but it's people don't do it for monetary gain. A lot of people seem to do it because they, they genuinely want to get married and want to live the rest of their life with someone and are having a hard time doing it in the regular routes. One person uh, on the internet that was on the show, he said that they got couples therapy from the therapist during the show. And he said it wasn't helpful at all. He used the word rubbish to describe it. He felt like they should have had more support from the experts, but they were basically left on their own. And I'll get more into that later as well. Uh, in a nutshell, I think that the show should have the marriage and family therapist involved much more early. Uh, all three experts, maybe. The Reverend, actually, from what I've seen, is pretty good at being able to help people get back together, help people to uh, have more positivity about their relationship that they're in. I've, I've only seen one intervention that he did. And the show just kind of leaves them on their own, which I find maybe in, I've only gotten through the first uh, five or so episodes, so maybe the experts get more involved later. But anyway, so let's look at their outcomes because we actually have, in a way, data on evaluating their process on this TV show as to how good they are at matchmaking people. How do their stats match up against, quote unquote, by chance? By chance meaning if you just randomly picked two people to get married and ma you know match that up to their matching people up, how, uh, how does it compare? Is it better than chance? Well, no one knows how to c compare this to chance because no one has ever done this kind of research. So we don't really know how to evaluate this TV show's outcomes. But let's look at the outcomes regardless because I think there are some things that we can say. So on the TV show, they will claim that eight couples are still married. So again, they, this is at the beginning of season 10 this year. And so they've had nine seasons and they're talking about how Eight couples are still married. So that sounds like a good success rate, right? You're like, whoa. So this TV show managed to match up eight couples that are still married, and some of them are having kids. That's amazing. But let's look more closely because another metric might be married for at least four years. That seems more reasonable, right? Because if the show throws you together to get married, there's a pretty good chance that you know, you'll give it a try for a couple years. But really, most of us would agree that a, a, a good match, if you really are a good match, if, if, if you've been match made <laughs> together, if you've been matched, then it's a good match if you last for at least four years, right? So 
then we have to go back to the first few seasons of the show because those have enough time for us to evaluate the longevity of these couples because a lot of the seasons are in the past few years. So let's look at seasons one through four. So this is years 2014 to 2016, which is uh, four years ago. So you have 12 couples spanning four seasons. Guess how many of the 12 couples are still married today? One couple is still married today. So that's an 8% success rate. So the question I would ask you is, would you sign up for a reality TV show that had an 8% success rate to be married after four years? And that's just four years, because what we'd really want to know is, are these relationships going to last 25 years? Or to put it another way, would you sign up for a matchmaking service that had a 92% chance that you would be divorced with that person within four years? So I would say, personally, that that's not a very good success rate. 8% or 92% divorce rate is not very good after four years. But let's be fair and let's look at their other seasons that are more recent. This is within the last three years. Seasons five through nine. They've had 17 couples and seven are married and eight and 10 are divorced. So it's close to half. It's like 40%-ish. But these marriage are all about two years old. So how many of these will, di- will end in divorce soon? Time will tell. Or the other supposition, the other hypothesis we could have is that they're actually getting better at matchmaking. If these seven married couples stay married for another four years, then we would maybe conclude that in the beginning, the first few seasons of this show, their methods were bad, and then they, they you know, fine-tuned it and they got better at it. That makes sense that they would learn through experience, right? Now, possible factors that might be making their numbers a little bit more favorable than would be an under, un- a normal situation. So first off, the people who sign up for this TV show are self-selected people who are desperate for marriage and stability, and they don't trust regular methods of dating, and they want to get married now, and they want to make it work. So these people are very rare people. How many people out there listening right now would sign up for a TV show that legally married you to someone else? without ever meeting them or even seeing them. You don't know picture, nothing. And then you're going to be filmed on TV f- for a long time. And, and for the rest of your life, that will be documented. And, you'll ha- and you have a 92% chance that you'll be divorced within four years or something like that. Not a lot of people are going to sign up for that. So it takes a very specific kind of person, a person who maybe is either so distraught about regular dating that they'll do anything to get married, or they're so easygoing (laughs) that they're just like, screw it, I'll go on that show and I'll get married. So that might mean that their numbers are a little better than what we would expect. Also, they're on TV and they're on their best behavior. And there's a lot of shame and failure that could happen on TV. And so maybe the shame of breaking up on TV keeps them together or keeps them on their best behavior and gives their marriage a little boost in the beginning. And also being in the foxhole together. When two people go through something 
that is very difficult for the two of them that can often bond them, you know, the foxhole effect. I often think that our modern uh, uh, wedding process is actually a culturally imposed foxhole. If you've ever been through a big wedding yourself, you know how hard it is to go through that. Your grandfather wants to invite 30 people that you don't want to pay for all their dinners and stuff. Your drunk aunt wants to come. Your divorced parents haven't talked to each other in 10 years. The flowers cost $3,000. The videographer cost, you know, there's so many different stresses that you go through. And really, often the couple incurs all of that stress. And that stress can really bond the two of you. And then the day itself, you go like the day of the wedding itself is a whirlwind of, of activity. And, and that can often bond people as well. It obviously could take a different direction. But so I wonder if just being on this reality TV show gives the couples a little boost in the beginning to help them bond. And the other thing is, is that, like I said earlier, they have a good method. Maybe they do have some intuition that helps them to predict two people that would be good for each other. Okay. So before I conclude Married at First Sight, I want to do a side note because some of you probably, some of you actually have been asking me to talk about this. So this doesn't have anything to do with the matchmaking. It just has to do with an ethical thing that involves one of the experts. So in season six, there was a couple, Molly and Jonathan. So this is the, one of the couples that the experts put together, and we followed them. They didn't work out in the end, uh, but during the show, they went to therapy with Dr. Jessica Griffin. She's a licensed psychologist, and I looked her up. She's currently licensed and, and still practicing. So Molly and Jonathan, they went to Dr. Jessica, and it didn't work out in the end, and they got divorced. Well, now, Jonathan, one of the participants in this TV show, is now engaged to, drumroll please, Dr. Jessica Griffin. So Jonathan is now engaged to their couple's therapist. That would seem very concerning, right? Because we have ethical codes and laws that prevent us from having sex with our clients from having romantic involvements with our clients. But let's look a little bit more specific to this. So Dr. Jessica Griffin, she's a licensed psychologist, and she follows the American Psychological Association Code of Ethics, which 10.08 states that sexual intimacies with former clients or patients, uh, A, it says, psychologists do not engage in sexual intimacies with former clients or patients for at least two years after cessation or termination of therapy. And it goes on from there. You, you also have to prove if, so say you do wait two years after termination to start a sexual or romantic relationship with someone, you still have to demonstrate that it is not going to harm that person. So, uh, so it looks like, you know, maybe, Dr. Jessica Griffin did wait a couple years. It certainly is within that time span. Uh, so who knows? But it does raise questions, and it it looks makes us look bad, honestly. Uh, when these kinds of things happen, I I just cringe because so many people out there think that therapists are a joke anyway, or that 
uh, we're all out to have sex with our clients or something, and it's just like not the case. And so these kinds of cases are very rare. And and then for it to be so public to be on on this reality TV show, it's it's just. I mean, God bless them, Jonathan and Dr. Gress, Dr. Jessica Griffin. Maybe they're a great couple. I'm I'm not going to say that they're not. I have no idea, but it just it's bad. It's bad optics. Also, according to reports, she wasn't considered to be their psychologist on the show. So that's their out. They're saying, well, you know, yeah, Dr. Jessica Griffin has these ethical codes that she has to follow. But Molly and Jonathan, they weren't her client. Well, then what was Dr. Jessica Griffin? Just like a concerned friend. <laughs> I mean, Dr. Jessica is touted as a psychologist and relationship expert who is helping this marriage succeed. What else would we call that? I think anyone would call that a couples therapist, right? So it's, you know, it's just kind of gross to me. So apparently it's not technically an ethical violation according to the small details I can find on the internet. And maybe if she was sued or she was brought before a licensing board, she could make the argument, look, it was all in the contract. I wasn't their psychologist. They weren't clients. I was just operating as a, as a concerned expert. I don't know. How, how can you describe a psychologist who helps a couple with their relationship in any other way other than to say that she is the couple's therapist? I don't know. It's, uh, I'm a stickler for stuff like that. Okay. So let's conclude on Married at First Sight. Point number one. As far as I can tell, the show has not revealed their details of their matchmaking method. So we don't really have much to go off of in terms of how they match people up, other than what we've heard from the participants, which is they take body measurements and they take a long survey. And then they have these experts interview them. Point number two. They seemingly match people by similarities in likes, dislikes, values, etc. Number three, their outcomes among relationships four years or longer, 92% of divorce. Point number four, the show is made to make money through selling advertisements. The show is not made to develop an effective matchmaking method. So we shouldn't expect them to have an effect. I mean, imagine if their matchmaking method was very, very good. It would be one of the boringest shows of all time. <laughs> if they, if they had a whole season where all the couples were just like, "Yep, man, we love each other. Man, they did a great job matching us up. No conflict. No one would watch the show." <laughs> so, in some ways, they're de-incentivized to have a good method of matchmaking people. So we have to remember that this is not a TV show that is designed to match people up effectively. It's a TV show designed to get views and to sell advertisements. And, you know, it is what it is. All right. Well, before moving forward, let's take a break. And we get back. Let's continue with this talk. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, I ask you please to do that because that is how we know you like what we are doing. It is how you can support the show so that we can keep 
this thing afloat. So go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast. And particularly if you want to become an upper tier patron, then you get various different swag and benefits like your emails get preference if you email me, that kind of thing. Okay. So we've talked about the reality TV show. Now let's talk about something that's way more prevalent in people's lives, which is online dating and the claims that these companies make. You know, these are basically contemporary matchmaking agencies. Uh, maybe not so much t uh, t Tinder, but things like eHarmony and Match.com, these the uh, OKCupid, okay these these outfits claim that they can matchmake people, right? These people are not selling advertisements. They are actually selling an effective matchmaking method. And they are making, you know, tons of money and they're gathering tons of data that would potentially help them develop solid science, right? Because for decades now, some of these companies have been uh, testing their participants, you know, asking a bunch of questions and tracking them to see if they actually stay in a relationship and fine-tuning their model. And a lot of these outfits will employ respected scientists and experts to help them develop this effective method. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a reality TV show. These are you know, serious scientists who are in the lab trying to figure this sort of thing out. So surely these companies have found success, right? They've had way more data than any psychologist could ever get their hands on. They have uh, the money to do it. They have the experts. Okay, so but let's look at it. All right, let's look at eHarmony first. So some of this might be out of date, but this is what I gathered from internet articles that would interview the experts and the producers of these sites. So eHarmony, online dating site, they have a 258-question personality test and then the site will pick potential partners for you. And eHarmony says that more than 19 million people have filled out their questionnaire. That is a huge data set. If you are a researcher out there, you're, you're happy to get like 200 questionnaires filled out, let alone 19 million. So surely with 19 million surveys filled out and millions of people presumably that's 19 million people who have signed up on eHarmony and then how many hundreds of thousands who have dated and gone on to have long-term relationships surely they have some kind of thing because for those of you who don't know the method basically what you do is you survey all these people based on your best guess given the research and then over time you see okay what people stayed together okay the, those two people stayed together. What was it about those two people that they filled out on the initial survey that we can look at that made them a good couple? And then you look at all the couples that stayed together. What's the commonality there? Did they? How many of them shared their political view? How many of them shared views on family or whatever it is that the questionnaire was designed to question? And you would think you would get some some signal there, some idea about like, well, people who fill out this survey in this way and match up with this other person in this way, they, they're highly predicted to be in a long-term relationship together. It seems pretty easy, right? Well, I'll get into the science later, but that's what a lot of these companies claim. The company estimates that its matchmaking is responsible for about 2% of the marriages 
in America in a particular year. That's pretty impressive, right? That's their claim. We, that's the marketers claiming those things. And they haven't released their data. They just make that claim. So we can't know if that is uh, a uh, you know, dubious figure or not. I would suspect that it is. And they haven't produced much scientific ev- evidence that their system works. So whenever people look into this, because scientists do, they'll be like, okay, so eHarmony, you claim that you have this scientific thing. Hand over your data so that an outside uh, unbiased person, objective evaluator, can see if your claim is actually uh, uh, true. Now, they say that their algorithm was developed by Galen Buckwalter. He's a psychologist previously at the University of Southern California. And they did a study based on evidence that personality similarities predict happiness in a relationship. And they uh, surveyed 5,000 married couples and correlated the answers of the couple's marital happiness. So essentially, uh, long story short, there is this one study, and there's actually a lot of studies on this, where you study married couples and you survey them and you see uh, for the successful marriages, you see how they tend to respond to these surveys in a way that matches up. And then you look for two people that aren't together, but their but their answers match up. You know what I mean? They develop this algorithm that's supposed to match people up in several areas: social style, emotional temperament, relation relationship skills, this kind of thing. And by the way, for some of you that know this, e- eHarmony is essentially anti-gay, and it says it can't match gay people with its algorithm because the data is based on heterosexuals, which is just incredibly. Um, bigoted, in my opinion. But anyway, one that you wouldn't uh, have the site <laughs> have gay people, you know, like you, uh, bar, you know, are basically discriminating against gay people. And two, that you would believe that the research wouldn't apply to gay people um, because uh, relationships are relationships. Of course, there's differences anyway. Um, now, perfectmatch.com, which is a different uh, 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 online dating site, is developed by Dr. Pepper Swartz. So she's the sociology professor who was on Married at First Sight. So she developed this algorithm for Perfect Match, and uh, I don't, I couldn't find much information on that, but I suspect that it's similar to all the other sites in which they have some secret algorithm that they won't reveal. And I'll get into later as to probably why they don't reveal it. Well, I'll just cut to the chase. (laughs) One is they probably don't reveal it, obviously, because they don't want to give away trade secrets, because if they gave away their algorithm, then other online dating sites could copy their thing. It's like, you know, Coca-Cola doesn't want to release their their, uh, recipe because they don't want other people to emulate it. I don't know if, if that's true, but you know what I'm saying. And the other reason is I highly suspect they don't want to release their algorithm because they know that their algorithm sucks, which I'll get into more later. Chemistry.com is another online site. This is an algorithm created by Helen Fisher. And Helen Fisher, if you don't know her, she's a pretty famous anthropologist at Rutgers, and she's famous for her work on the brain science of love. I actually have a book by hers on my uh, shelf that's called Why We Love. It's, she's a popular writer on brain science and love. 
And in my opinion, she has some wonderful things to say, but sometimes in my opinion, she takes a little too far and goes into areas that I don't think she knows that much about. Now, she's a serious scientist, and she has claimed that she plans to publish the findings and the algorithm uh, so that people... Helen Fisher, Pepper Schwartz, all these experts who are associated with these websites are getting attacked by the scientific community because it's like you are a serious scientist who was sold out, by the way, to these marketers, which is fine. But you're claiming you're making scientific claims that your algorithm works. Well, if you're a true scientist, then have someone review your claim so that we can know if your scientific claim is accurate or not, because it's actually unethical to make false claims as a as a scientist and as a clinician and so uh helen fisher has come forward and say no no we're gonna we're gonna reveal our algorithm we're gonna reveal our findings because i'm a serious scientist and i want outside reviewers to look at this stuff and guess what the algorithm has not been published yet as of the articles that i was reading okcupid is another online dating site and that also uses an algorithm and OKCupid itself, the, the whole site itself, was actually founded by a group of mathematicians. And they say, quote, their algorithm is extremely accurate as long as you're honest and you know what you want. So let's, let's break that down. <laughs> so their algorithm is extremely accurate in terms of matching up, you know, good matches. As long as you're honest. Well, what do they mean by that? And as long as you know what you want. Well, what do they mean by that? Those are very interesting things to say. That's like saying, when I, you know, wave these crystals over your cancer, uh, it only works if you believe <laughs> that kind of stuff. And so it's extremely accurate as long as you're honest and as long as you know what you want. Well, how do they measure honesty and knowing what you want? Of course, they don't because that's a complicated question. So I'm guessing what's happening is that the algorithm quote unquote works in that some people on OKCupid are meeting and are getting married. And then they're like, yep, success. So it's confirmation bias. That's where we were extremely accurate. And those other couples that it didn't work out for our algorithm didn't work for them because they weren't being honest and they didn't really know what they wanted. You know, it just sounds extremely uh, silly. Plus, okay. If we're actually going to match make people and some people are ha- have a hard time being honest and some people have a hard time knowing what they want, well, the matchmaking service should include those people as well or should at least help guide those people to be honest or to, to know what they want anyway. And then, of course, we have Tinder, but I don't think they actually do much matchmaking given their model. Okay, so let's look at some of the research that is published where they do publish their findings research scientists who have actually looked into, okay, how can we use surveys? Because that's how all these websites work, right? They administer a survey, and then they try to match the survey responses with someone else. Well, there was a study, Joe and colleagues in 2017, they did a study, and they used machine learning, which is a you know, semi-new method of looking for patterns in data, And they took single people and they had them complete a survey with 100 questions about traits and preferences that have identified as being relevant to to mate selection. So in other words, what these researchers did is they looked at all the previous research on mate selection and on matchmaking. 
And then they designed this survey based on all that previous research. Like uh, people who have similar political views tend to match well together. People who have similar values about family or people who have similar backgrounds tend to fit well together. And so they designed, they designed this survey to get at those questions and then they, they tried to come, you know, match people up based on these similarities using machine learning to determine which couples are going to be good for each other. The singles also did a speed dating process and to, to see if, and then they asked the people, so did you actually like that? So they tried to predict, okay, of, of these bunch of people, these people are probably going to like each other. And then they did a speed dating process and then they asked them, did you like that person? Because our model predicted you were going to like that person. And then they tried to figure out how good they were at predicting. And what they found is, is they, that they were unable to predict relationship variants using any combination of traits and preferences. In other words, it's nearly impossible to predict which singles will hit it off and sustain a relationship together. So I just want to say that again. <laughs> With surveys, it is nearly impossible, if not impossible, to predict which singles will be attracted to each other and which singles will sustain a relationship together. All of these websites are using surveys, and the research that's you know published, and there's many more studies other than this Joe et al. 2017 study, that demonstrates that it's really, really hard to match people up that way. There are too many other factors to look at that I'll get into later. So let's conclude about online dating and their scientific claims of matchmaking. To date, it has not been demonstrated to work better than chance, and this is the consensus. This, is, this isn't just my opinion. This is the opinion of the experts, that these sites have not demonstrated that their matchmaking method works better than chance. They are not publishing their results, so that is, that is suspicious. And people out there, anecdotally, who have been on these sites, Match.com, eHarmony, OkCupid. Of all the people that they matched you up with, how many of those people, one, were you attracted to, and two, did you have a long-term relationship with? I'm guessing some of you have had long-term relationships with. But if we pooled all of you together, how many of you who went on OkCupid, uh, what was the rate of success? I'm, I'm going to take a guess and say it was extremely low. <laughs> I know people including Bob, actually, he talks about this on the podcast, how I think he was on Match, I'm not sure. And he dated hundreds of women before he found his Colleen. <laughs> but I don't blame these sites. I mean, it's just really difficult to predict. But they make these claims that I think they should be a little, uh, you know, I think they should tone that down a little bit. And that's why Tinder, I appreciate them because they don't make those claims. They're just like, you know what? We're just going to throw everyone within five miles, their headshot your way. And then, you know what? You just look at their face and, you know, there's a little bit of a profile there. And it's up to you. We don't, we don't claim that we have any way of matchmaking people. It's just like, it's up to you. You know, this is just a way to get things started. And in some ways, it, it, all online dating sites should probably just be that because these surveys don't work very well. And 
you might as and then to make you go through all the surveys and then to give you all this false hope that you know because some of these sites will be like you are a 90 percent match with this person as if the site knows that because of course they don't but they make those claims and they make it seem like it's scientific blah 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 anyway so dna matchmaking so this is different from online dating services this is DNA matchmaking. This is big in Japan and Singapore and maybe other places in Asia. So, and I'm guessing this will come to the United States at some point, if it isn't already. So these organizations, these companies, they claim that they can match couples based on their DNA. Sounds scientific, right? They look at your DNA and they determine whether or not you're going to be a good match. Well, it's absurd. If you know anything about DNA... <laughs> <laughs> and about matchmaking and relationships, you know, this is absolutely absurd. You could see how it would convince people, though, but it's absurd. Research has looked into this, and it is not demonstrated to work better than chance. So all these people paying hundreds of dollars for DNA matchmaking are wasting their money. Maybe they're getting some kind of placebo effect out of it. I don't know. Like if you learn, oh, this person is DNA matched to me, does that give you an extra boost to get the relationship going? Maybe, who knows? And then the last that I thought about here in terms of big organizations or movements that involve in matchmaking is astrology. I'm not going to go into the full details on this. There's a lot of anecdotal claims, as you know. There's a lot of people out there that say, oh, well, Leos are good with Pisces, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to conclude all the different research and say, and there is tons of research because it's pretty easy to research, actually. It, for a very low amount of money, you can research this because all you got to find out is their birth date or their their moon sign or the, you know, the Jupiter was rising in this house or whatever. Like there's a pretty easy way to codify all that. And then you just see if those two people work together in, in the long term better than other people. Tons of research. No demonstration that it works better than chance. So astrology to date has not demonstrated that it works any better than chance. So in conclusion of these uh, sorts of things, you have married at first sight, not demonstrated to work better than chance. And again, uh, after four years, 92% divorce rate. And then you have online dating companies with dubious claims and with parallel research that we can view, we can see that giving surveys to people is definitely not an effective way of, of matchmaking people as demonstrated by empirical science. DNA matchmaking astrology, not any better than chance. Okay. So the science says that we can't predict who will be attracted to each other and who will sustain a relationship, right? Well, this is not true. Science actually has a way of matching people. Uh, we just know that it's nearly impossible, if not impossible, to match people by surveys. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because dating sites and married at, married at first sight, in order for them to go beyond surveys, it would be very expensive for them. And it would be very complicated. And frankly, they don't need to use science-based methods because they're effective at convincing people that their cheap method works, and so they, they're making billions of dollars and getting a lot of people to watch their TV show. So they don't need to use a scientific method. But let's get into the actual evidence-based, science-based matchmaking methods. 
or factors to consider. Okay, if surveys don't work really well, then what does work? Well, there's this theory or this hypothesis called equally socially desirable or the matching hypothesis or the matching phenomenon. This was first developed in the 1960s by a social psychologist named Elaine Hatfield. It's widely accepted. There's tons of evidence that backs this up over the past number of decades. Basically, what this hypothesis states is that people are attracted to others who are equally socially desirable, and they stay in a relationship with people who are equally socially desirable. Well, what do we mean by equally socially desirable? Well, these are things like physical attraction, education, social skills, charisma, prestige, this sort of thing. So in other words, two equally uh, physically attractive people, two people who have a lot of education, social skills, charisma, that they tend to be attracted to each other and they tend to sustain a relationship with each other. So now some people might not like this theory very much. And I might agree with you on some level because it feels like it's a judgment of someone's worth, meaning that, you know, if someone is low in education, then they're not worthy or something. But the thing here is that this is highly personal and it's also social in that we all grow up in a society that values some people over others. It's just the way that it is. It's, it's not okay that that happens, by the way. But it is the way that it is. We should uh, we should try to change it, and we're trying to change it. You know, like white people are better than black people, or whatever. Men are better than women, or whatever it is that there are uh, biases. And we have all that sort of downloaded into our head, and we tend to uh, be attracted to people who we believe have a lot of social value. Now, is this the only reason why people are attracted to each other? No, but it is one of the factors, and I'm going to go into all the different factors. But it is one of the factors that plays into people's attraction as demonstrated by empirical science. Now, can two people get together who aren't equally socially desirable? You know, one person is extremely good looking and highly educated and has a great job, and the other person isn't. Can those two people fall in love and have a wonderful relationship? Absolutely. But in general, on average, people tend to be attracted to and tend to stay with people that have equal social value. And again, that's very subjective, right? So it's perceived by the individuals. So let's look at some of the research. So people who, are, who consider themselves to be equally socially desirable, they, that they're in relationships with people who are equally socially desirable, they rate themselves as happier and more in love. Whereas unequal partners rate themselves, on average, as less happy and less in love. Partners most similar in physical attractiveness were found to rate themselves happier in their relationship. They also report deeper feelings of love with each other. So physical attractiveness and other markers of social desirability are important factors when considering attraction and long-term relationships. Not the only factor, by any means, but one of the important factors. So conclusion. Matchmakers should try to match people based on social desirability. But the question is, how do you measure social desirability? That's a tough one, right? How do you measure how attractive someone is? 
because certainly a lot of people have different tastes in attractiveness in other people. How do you measure the importance of education or prestige or charisma against someone's physical attraction? It's, it's hard to say, but it is something to consider. And I will say that the reality TV show Married at First Sight, at least in this one episode, the marriage and family therapist claimed they didn't consider physical attractiveness at all. They only considered, they only considered values which is ignoring the science. All right. So that is equally socially desirable. Now, I don't want to equate equal social desirability with with physical attractiveness because it also involves, again, education, social skills, charisma, prestige of job, that kind of stuff. All right. So let's look on to the second factor here, similarity. We are attracted to similar people. Contrary to the notion that opposites attract, It is not true that opposites attract. Now, why do we love the idea that opposites attract, even though opposites don't attract? Well, some people will speculate that it's because to be attracted to someone who is similar to you is boring. And there's not a lot of good rom-coms about two people who are exactly alike falling in love, right? It's usually like there's, there's, you know, she's a high-powered businesswoman and he's a slob and they fall in love. Well, we just have a very romantic culture around difference and we really like that beauty and the beast, this kind of thing. But the fact is, is we are attracted to extremely similar people. Now, it's on average. So can someone be attracted to someone who is very different? Absolutely. But when we look at large groups of people, on average, people are attracted to similar people. So uh, speculation from experts is that this validates our beliefs about the world. So when you are, we like to hang out with people who are the same. All you got to look at at Twitter and Facebook to realize this, that our algorithms will feed us information that confirm our belief systems, right? That makes us feel good. We like our views of the world to be validated. And so in the same way, we want to be with someone who does that, not just about politics, but about everything in life. Another theory or speculation is that this reduces the risk of conflicts, right? If you are very similar to your spouse, then chances are you're not likely to fight as much. Also, propagation of the gene pool, that if you marry someone with similar genes and, you know, similar values, maybe they have similar genes to you, then you're more likely to propagate your style of genes into the next generation. Okay, so what sort of things are people looking at in terms of similarities? Well, again, physical attractiveness. People who are of similar physical attractiveness tend to be attracted to each other and tend to sustain long-term relationships. Attachment style, which I'll get into later. Political attitudes, religious attitudes, socioeconomic background, level of education, intelligence, social status, Marital status, like if you're both never married or you're both married with kids, that kind of stuff. So we tend to be attracted to people who have more similarities than people than we don't have. We tend to sustain long-term relationships with people that have a lot of similarities. Again, similar attractiveness, attachment style, political stuff, religion, socioeconomic, education, intelligence, social status, and marital status. So let's look at a study from 2019 last year, Levy et al. They looked at a massive data set of over 
421 million users on a dating app. They looked at psychological traits like extroversion or physical traits like height or personal choices like desiring the same relationship type, shared experiences. And they found that the more similar people were, the more likely they were to start dating. The only exception to this was with introversion, is that introverts did not want to date other introverts, according to this one study. And that's, that's not a lot to go off of, but I thought that was interesting. But anyway, so there's a lot of research, and I just identified one such study that demonstrates that we're attracted to people who are similar to us, and we sustain long-term relationships with people. However, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a second. I thought those uh, matchmaking online dating services, I thought that's what they did, right? They surveyed people and matched people up. I thought you said that that worked uh, or that didn't work, but now you're saying it does work. Well, lots of research shows that just matching people by their similarities is not effective in predicting who will be attracted to each other and who will sustain a relationship. So it is something that is definitely that definitely needs to be considered. But if that's all you look at, then that isn't going to make a good match. It's like making a hamburger with only the bun, if that makes any sense. <laughs> all right, so conclusion. When matchmaking, similarity could be a helpful factor when you're trying to match two people. But it's not very predictive of attraction or long-term relationships in and of itself. All right, let's look at personality. This seems pretty obvious, right? Two people with similar personalities, they would get along, right? Personality match has been found over research to be important. In the Netherlands, a study was conducted, and what they found was that almost 40% of divorcees report mismatches in personalities as the major cause of their breakup. Now, that's self-report, so who knows? But let's, let's actually look at the research looking at how do you predict which two personalities will fit well together. Well, first off, I will tell you in brief, if you're not familiar with personality research, is it's hard to measure. Because what do we mean by personality? Also, what part of personality do we look at? It's very complicated. Personality is extremely complicated. Some might even say that no two people on the planet have the same personality. So right there, it's very complicated. <laughs> Dijkstra et al. Uh, 2008 study found that people prefer personality traits like conscientiousness, extrovertedness, and emotionally stable. So let's look at this for a second, because this is actually in line with a lot of other research, that when they look at trying to match people up by personality traits, it's not a matter of matching people up. It's just a matter of some personality traits are very attractive to people, like being conscientious, meaning you're very thoughtful, you're very considerate, and you're careful about what you do and, and what other, you're not impulsive, if that makes, you know. And you're also extroverted, meaning that you're outward and you're, you're social. And you're emotionally stable. So these personality traits, according to this study in 2008, Everyone on average, not everyone, of course, but on average, you know, because certainly introverts will be, you know, will like other introverts maybe. But uh, personality traits, conscientiousness, extrovertedness, emotionally stable. So 
if but this but this presents a conundrum, right? Because if you are a online dating service and you determine, okay, that person is conscientious, according to the research, you're like, well, anyone will match up well with that person because everyone loves that personality or on average people love that personality trait. It's not a matter of matching two people. It's just a matter of what personality traits tend to attract other people and tend to sustain a relationship. Okay, let's look at the five-factor model if you're familiar. There's lots of research looking into the five-factor model of personality into matchmaking. And in summary, there's not much to say other than neuroticism has been found to be the most consistent predictor of relationship dissatisfaction. So if you have, um, if you're neurotic, meaning anxious and depressed frequently, it tends to predict less relationship satisfaction, which makes sense, right? doesn't mean you're doomed as a, as a person in relationships, but it, it can play a factor. So there's a lot more research. That was a very brief look at some of the research, but a lot of the research isn't very useful. That's, that's my conclusion. So what is the overall conclusion here on personality? Well, the fact is, is it's hard to measure people's personality, one. And two, it's really hard to match people by personality. You could try to match... Uh, you know, people with conscientiousness and extrovertedness and emotionally stable, but what about all the other people? But that is something to consider. All right, let's go on to our next factor here. This is number four. This is attachment. So we've talked about equally socially desirable. We've talked about similarity. We've talked about personality. Let's talk about attachment. So we all need attachment security, as we all know. As children... When our attachment security is threatened, we develop a style of reacting to that threat. That style is dependent on what occurs to us in the moment from our environment and what works. And there are four different categories of coping styles with attachment threat. Uh, one is, is secure attachment, and one is called avoidant, one's called preoccupied, and another is disorganized. And our attachment coping style is highly predictive of our ability to sustain a long-term relationship and a happy relationship. Thus, in matchmaking, attachment style should be considered. And I'm guessing it's not considered by a lot of people because it's usually ignored. Okay, so let's look at the research in terms of attachment style and matchmaking. Okay, similar to personality, there is a issue here in, in terms of People who have secure attachment tend to be highly sought after, and they tend to do better in relationships, which makes sense, right, if you know anything about attachment. If you want to know more about attachment, listen to my deep dive. I talked for 17 hours on attachment theory. and so. But secure attachment is basically when you're raised well and you have a good uh, amount of self-esteem and you also have a good amount of trust in other people. And so secure attachment is predictive of successful conflict resolution, secure attachment is predictive of commitment and trust and positive emotions in a relationship and relationship satisfaction. You're more likely to experience and contribute to intimacy and, war and warmth in the, in the relationship. You're more likely to perceive relational conflicts as less threatening. You'll tend to use adaptive conflict resolution strategies and you're less likely to use coercive, aggressive, or withdrawal strategies during conflicts. 
So basically, when you are raised well or you earn secure attachment through therapy or secure relationships, then you tend to just do really well in relationships. You like relationships. You trust people. You have positive emotions. You you tend to use functional ways of conflicting with each other, and you're less likely to use dysfunctional ways. But what about styles fitting well together? A lot of people out there will ask me this question. It's like, well, I'm preoccupied and I'm pretty sure my my wife is avoidant. Do do are we doomed? Can do we fit well together? Well, it's complicated. There's been a lot of research into this and it's there's a lot of contradictory research findings. Some say that avoidant people fit well with avoidant people. Other studies find that avoidant people fit well with preoccupied people. And I'm here to tell you that based on my read on the consensus and on the research studies that I've looked at, there's not a lot of things we can say about attachment styles fitting well together, other than the fact that people tend to do well with secure attached people. So two secure attached people, very likely to be attracted to each other and and more likely to sustain a relationship. And and if if there's just one person that's secure and the other person is preoccupied or avoidant or disorganized, then that relationship will also tend to do well. But if you have two insecure people, then things tend to have a harder time, which makes sense, right? Uh, if you understand insecure attachment, you're going to be triggered more often. Your traumas are still there in significant ways. You're going to have a harder time knowing what you want. There, there's just a lot of things that come with insecure attachment that, that are hard to live with when you're just trying to sustain a relationship. Now, I will say for people that are thinking, oh my God, am I doomed? No. People with insecure attachment can absolutely have a long-term relationship. I mean, just look at Bob. He, he says he's disorganized and preoccupied, and he's had, I don't know how many years with Colleen, many, many years, and but they have to work at it like any other couple. So it's not like you're doomed. The other thing is, is that if you do have an insecure attachment style, you're not doomed to to that attachment style with therapy, with secure attachments, you can earn secure attachments. So anyway, so, so there's that. All right. Conclusion. Attachment style is fairly easily measured by the way, and matching two secure people, or at least one secure person in the match would greatly increase the likelihood of attraction and long-term relationship satisfaction. Insecure types can be attracted, can, sorry, insecure uh, rela- attachment styles can be attractive and can sustain relationships, but secure people don't have to work at it as much. So if you are a matchmaker, then it would be definitely within your interests to measure attachment, look for securely attached people and match them together. How does this relate to Married at First Sight? Well, as I said before, they're not in the business of matching people. They're in the business of selling advertisements, which means that if you matched all securely attached people, then you're going to find a very boring TV show (laughs) because no one is going to have any drama. Now, I'm not accusing uh, Married at First Sight of finding people that are bad matches and shoving them together, but... I'm saying that uh, there would at least be a little of incentive there. Okay. So we did equally socially desirable, similarity, personality, and attachment. Let's go on to number five. This is body odor. <laughs> we are attracted to particular body smells. 
Our attraction to body smells is related to our major histocompatibility complex. Basically, in a nutshell, the major histocompatibility complex is a section of DNA that codes for our immune system. And this is true for all vertebrates, mammals, birds. We essentially, by smelling each other, we subconsciously detect their genes. And in a nutshell, we can smell the type of immune system that other people have. It's not conscious, but when we smell each other, we are basically smelling their immune system. And research has found that successful long-term couples have major histocompatibility complex DNA uh, genes that are different from each other. And why would this be? Well, the speculation evolutionary-wise is it results in children with better immune systems, essentially. So how do we know this? Well, in the lab, we ask people to smell shirts worn by others. They have their, their body odor sort of, you know, gets on their shirts. And so you have people smell shirts. And then they ranked others uh, with different genes as more attractive on average. So people with different major histocompatibility complex genes tend to get rated uh, more attractive just based on smell. So again, imagine you're a participant in one of these studies and you're given like 10 shirts to smell. And all you do is rate the uh, attraction, the attractiveness of that person based on the smell of their shirt. <laughs> and you rank them. You're like, okay, well, this, this, I don't know, this person smells pretty attractive to me. This person smells awful to me. Well, on average, what that means is the one you, that smelled really good just had different genes than you did, and the one that smelled very bad to you had very similar genes to you, the genes that code for the immune system. So research has looked at people with different hist major histocompatibility complex genes, and they find that, again, they find, people as more, they find each other as more attractive, they have more satisfying sex lives, they have increased fertility rates, and they produce children with stronger immune systems. So when you have a different smell, a different uh, you know, immune system gene that smells different, you are more attracted to that person, you like having sex with that person, you're more likely to have babies with that person, and your children have stronger immune systems. Okay, so conclusion. Body odor is probably one of the factors that results in attraction and long-term love. But it's hard to measure that, right? Because I guess you would have to do a DNA test on everyone and look at the major uh, histocompatibility complex. And I'm not even sure if you can do that at this point. So although that is a factor, that's one of those things that matchmakers are going to have a hard time measuring. I guess what they could do is they could just, um, maybe there's a way that researchers could categorize, maybe there's like 30 different types of smells that humans have. Maybe there's a way of, of categorizing everyone into a type, like your type 32. And according to this chart, 32 people, uh, type 32 people like people one through 10, or I don't know if that makes any sense. Anyway, let's move on. Okay, so the number six factor. So again, we did equally socially desirable, similarity, personality, attachment, and body order. Let's go on to our next factor, behavioral exchanges. So the behavioral exchange between two people 
is extremely important as they date and as they have a long-term relationship, right? The way that people behave, the things they say to each other, the things they do to each other. Now, this is impossible to predict, right? Matchmakers can't predict how two people are going to behave towards each other, the choices that they will make towards each other. So, but when we look at the research, it is extremely important in determining what couples will stay together. So you can have everything in line, your body odor, your similarities, equally socially desirable, your personality traits, your attachment, all that could be perfectly in line. And then in the first five minutes of the first date, someone does something that turns the other person off and the whole thing is off. So behavior is a big part of this. We tend to, as matchmaking people, you know, when we think of matchmaking, I find that most people think about like personality and surveys and this kind of thing. But it really comes down to the behavior that we do with each other. Anyway, so I have a study here, Riggle et al. 2016, but I'm not going to go into it too much because I'm running out of time. So let it be known, conclusion, that the behavior between two people as they date and as they have a long-term relationship is impossible to predict. We have no way of predicting how two people are going to behave towards each other. But you could help new couples with their behavior towards each other and long-term couples with their, that's what couples therapy is, is we help people with their behavior towards each other. So although you would have a hard time predicting how they're going to treat each other, you absolutely can engineer them to be attracted to each other. Like on the show, Married at First Sight, uh, if I, if I had it my way, I would be there (laughs) Every day, meeting with those couples and saying, okay, what just happened today? Let's work that out. Okay, what's going on? And then help them to behave better towards each other, to be attracted to each other, and be able to sustain their relationship. Okay, so let's go on to uh, number seven. This is environmental circumstances. There are so many environmental circumstances that contribute to attraction and long-term relationships. For example, in the beginning of a relationship, let's say that a, a dude that you are being set up with is playing on stage in a rock band or something, and you're just like, oh, he looks really hot on stage. Versus you meet him for the first time as he's puking his guts out because he's too drunk in the alleyway. <laughs> okay? So that's an environmental circumstance that's going to play a big role in whether or not you're attracted to that person. Or let's say you meet someone at a New Year's Eve party and everyone's drinking and it's merriment and it's romantic and you kiss that person versus you meet that person at work on a Monday morning. Or you meet during a pandemic or you're dating while someone in your family has cancer and it's hard to pay attention to that person you're starting to date. Or on a particular day, you feel like you're having a great hair day. And you just feel like, my God, I'm hot. And you meet someone in that circumstance. Whereas you meet the same person on a, in a different universe when you feel real schlubby. That is an environmental circumstance that's going to change how attracted you are to that person. Or on a sunny day versus a rainy day. Or when you're sick versus you're healthy. These are 
I, I think, quite obvious environmental circumstances that are going to change how attracted you are to someone. And then let's think about the long term. A bad economy and your spouse loses their job. And that puts, puts tremendous pressure or bad economy and you both have to work all the time and you can't see each other very often. That's an environmental circumstance, the bad economy, that would have a big effect on your relationship and whether or not you are happy in that relationship. Or you go through a pandemic or you have to move for work or your child dies. These are environmental circumstances that no one can predict that have a huge effect on whether or not a relationship would stay together. So again, I want to return to the claim that eHarmony and Married at First Sight and Match.com and OkCupid that they claim that by asking people some questions on a survey, they can predict who will be good for each other in a, in a marriage. And when we think about these other factors, we're like, well, that's absurd because you can't predict a behavior. You can't, pre- you can't predict these environmental circumstances. So conclusion, it's impossible to predict, but you could help people through those circumstances. Like on Married with First Sight, uh, there are environmental circumstances that happen to these couples, and an expert could help them with that. Okay, so let's look at our final two factors here that I came up with, and that is the, the second one. The second to last one is Gottman. So John Gottman is a researcher on couples looking at what differentiates couples that stay married versus what what couples divorce. So uh, he's a local hero, John Gottman. He lives in the area. He, by the way, has been divorced twice. He's happily married now, but he's uh, world-renowned in the field of couples therapy. And... Basically what he found, long story short, I've done episodes on Gottman, but long story short, he did tons and tons of research on couples and found that he was able to predict with 87% accuracy which couples would divorce within five years just based on the way that they acted in the lab. And what he found was there is a number of behaviors that were associated with breaking up in the future, criticizing each other's personality, contempt, for the person from a position of superiority, being defensive, or stonewalling or emotional withdrawal. So these behaviors were found to be highly predictive of divorce later on. So conclusion, if people, so you could ask people in scientific matchmaking, you could ask people, how critical were you of your past partner? How much contempt did you have with your past partner? How defensive were you with your past partner? Did you stonewall or emotionally withdraw from your past partner? But that's hard, you know, because that's self-report. And a lot of people are going to say, no, I wasn't defensive with my past partner. But you could potentially try to find that, that data. And from that data, you could, you could determine whether or not someone would be good. But it's similar to attachment and personality in that what you're basically looking for in matchmaking is people who don't do those things. But what about the people who do do those things? How do you match those people up? If that, I hope that makes sense. So now, as I said, with behavioral exchanges and emotional circumstances, you can absolutely help people after you matchmake them with these issues of contempt, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling. All right. The last factor here is differentiation. In a nutshell, nutshell, developed by 
um, uh, Murray Bowen in the 50s and 60s. Basically, there are two dimensions to differentiation. There's the interpersonal and the intrapersonal, meaning between people and inside of you. (laughs) So it is the ability to be differentiated versus undifferentiated is the ability to handle anxiety or relational tension or possible rejection from others. So you have good emotional regulation. You tend not to react to small threats from other people. You own your own feelings. You're assertive. You take care of others while while taking care of the self. And you have a stable sense of who you are and you have a good self-esteem. This is associated by science that when you are differentiated, you're more attractive to other people. You're more secure in yourself. You tend to know what you want. You tend to be able to sustain long-term relationships better. You have higher relationship well-being and you have less romantic jealousy. So being high on the differentiation scale makes you attractive and makes it better for you to sustain a long-term, easier for you to sustain a long-term relationship. So conclusion, there are measures that can determine if two people are high on differentiation or not. So you could actually, as a matchmaker, look for people who are highly differentiated because those people are going to be attractive and they're going to tend to uh, have long-term relationships more easily. But that's similar to personality and attachment um, and Gottman in that. So you're just basically looking for extremely healthy people who are raised by extremely healthy parents. And of course, those people are going to be more attractive. And of course, those people are going to be able to sustain longer relationships. What about everyone else, (laughs) which might be a majority of people? Okay. So let's review the factors. Equally socially desirable. This is people are attracted to others who are equally socially desirable. Matchmakers should try to match people based on social desirability. But how do you measure social desirability? That's a tough one. But it is something to consider. Number two is similarity. We are attracted and sustain long-term relationships with similar people. When matchmaking... Similarity should be looked at, but it's not the only thing, right? It's, it's, a, it's a factor, but it's not the only factor. Personality. Personality match is very important, but as I said earlier, it's hard to match people by personality. But you could uh, look for people who are conscientious, extroverted, and emotionally stable and predict that, you know, they're probably going to do okay. Attachment. Attachment style is pretty easily measured as opposed to personality. And again, with personality, you're looking to match secure people because they tend to be more attractive and they tend to sustain relationships. Not that insecure types can't have long-term relationships and can't be attractive, but that's what the data shows us. And body odor, uh, hard to to, uh, put that into a method of matchmaking. I mean, I suppose if you were doing it in person, you could just, you know, maybe in the future, there'll be an online dating service where you literally just send someone your shirt before you meet up in person or something to see if they like the way you smell. Behavioral exchanges, again, nearly totally impossible to predict the way two uh, two people are going to behave towards each other after they meet. Environmental circumstances are very important to Attraction and long-term relationships, again, impossible to predict. 
John Gottman and his theory. Um, you could maybe use this with matchmaking by asking people how they fought with their past partners. Healthy fighting could mean that they're more likely to be attractive and sustain a long-term relationship, but that's a hard one because it's all self-report. And the last year is differentiation. People higher in differentiation are more attractive and more likely to sustain a long-term relationship. So, but again, what about everyone else? What about the undifferentiated people? How do you match those people up? All right. So let's do my final conclusion here. (laughs) After reviewing all the research, and this was what I wanted to get to, because as I was watching that Married at First Sight show, I was like, okay, well, can we scientifically predict if two people will be a good match? Will they be attracted to each other? And will they sustain a long-term relationship with each other? And I'm here to tell you, based on all the research that I've read, and I've read hundreds of articles and read hundreds of meta-analyses and think pieces and this kind of thing, it is nearly, if not essentially impossible to predict if two people will be attracted to each other and sustain a relationship. Look, it's, it's not hard to predict. It's not hard to ask someone like what they're attracted to, right? They'll be like, okay, I have a type. I like dark hair and brown eyes and extroverted and this sort of thing. Okay. Okay. And, and that might be true, but to find, and then you say you go out and you find someone that fits that description perfectly. According to the research and according to anecdotal evidence myself, those two people are extremely unlikely to be attracted to each other and sustain a long-term relationship with each other because you just can't predict all the other factors that play into a good match. I mean, for those of you who have sex, because not everyone has sex, some people are asexual, but for those of you who, and asexual people have sex as well. Anyway, (laughs) my point is, is that for those of you who uh, have sex with people, having sex with someone is a very uh, specific process, right? The way two people come together sexually is very unique. How do you code for that? How do you predict how that's going to work out? I'm guessing, and I know anecdotally, a lot of you out there are like, yeah, I had this great date, and then we had we, we started making out, we started having sex, and it was awful, and I never saw that person again. <laughs> how, how do you predict that before those two people come together? There's, there's no way. I mean, maybe there's some broad strokes, excuse the pun, that you could ask. Like, um, I don't know. I don't know. Like, what would you say? Like, do you like it hot and heavy, or do you like it soft and cuddly or I don't know what you would ask. It would be pretty hard, right? So it's really hard, if not impossible, to to predict these two people are going to be attracted to each other and they're going to sustain a long-term relationship with each other. Basically, according to, the, to my uh, f- full deep dive on this topic is if you want to do successful matchmaking... It all comes down to what you do after the match was made. Now, again, you, as I said earlier, you want to do a little bit upfront. You want people to be as similar as possible. You want them to be as equally socially desirous as possible. You want them to, um, I don't know, I'm just looking at my notes here. You, it, but you can't say you want them to be as differentiated as possible because there's a lot of people who aren't very differentiated. So you don't want to discriminate against the undifferentiated people. So basically the only thing you can do if, if you accept everyone into your matchmaking service is, 
equally socially desirable, and as similar as possible. And then after you match make them, after they start dating, right away, you do what you can to help them behave towards each other in a good way that facilitates attraction and facilitates long-term relationships. Try to reduce their stress overall, get them into therapy, these kinds of things. I know it's a tall ask, and I'm sure it'll never happen, but I would love it if we had uh, tax dollars spent so that everyone, when they start dating, can go to therapy for five to 10 sessions. Think about how wonderful that would be. (laughs) I could see that having huge positive effects on society. One, you are starting a relationship, right? Two, uh, you're probably working on things that'll help you with your parenting down the line and your kids will benefit from parents that stay together and manage their emotions. But I just, you know, I, I always think about the wide sweeping positive effects that we could have on the world if we just pulled our heads out of our butts and actually spent our money in some good ways. But as a thought experiment, I thought, well, if I was on Married at First Sight and I was one of those experts, which I will probably never be asked to do, and if I was asked, I probably would never do it because of a lot of reasons. (laughs) But if I was on that show and I was looking at all the different people and I was tasked with looking at hundreds, thousands of people and saying, okay, which of these people are going to be a good match that will end in marriage that lasts and they have kids and blah, blah, blah. Well, I would look for people who are equally socially desirable, particularly physical attractiveness and socioeconomic status. And those can be determined fairly easily through interview and measures. I would also want to look for, because what I'm looking for here is I'm looking for people who are very likely to be attracted to each other and very likely to sustain a long-term relationship. And so they wouldn't have to both be very attractive. They would just have to be very equally attractive they, and they would have to be equally on the socioeconomic status. Also, I'd look for people who are very similar, particularly political attitudes, religious attitudes, level of education and intelligence. And those are again, pretty easy to study, to measure in people. I'd also want to look for personality traits like conscientiousness, emotionally stable, and extroverted because those people tend to attract people and they tend to have better relationships. I'd also want to look for attachment styles, particularly secure attachment because, again, they tend to be attractive to people and they tend to be able to sustain long-term relationships and work out conflict more easily. I'd want to look at John Gottman issues like particularly the issue of healthy conflict styles. Do they conflict in the past in healthy ways? And I'd also want to find highly differentiated people. So if I found people who were equally socially desirable, similar physical attractiveness, similar socioeconomic status, similar in politics, religion, love education, IQ, similar, they, they both are conscientious, emotionally stable, extroverted, secure attachment, healthy con- conflict styles, highly differentiated people, then science at least shows that those two people are extremely more likely than chance to be attracted to each other and extremely more likely than chance to have a, to sustain a long-term relationship with each other. So th- those are the things that I'd be looking at. As far as I can tell, 
none of the dating sites and and married at first sight are not looking that deep into things. Why? Because it's it'd be very expensive <laughs> to measure someone's attachment style, to measure someone's past conflictual styles. It would take a while. Now, I would like to think that, and this is maybe just my arrogance, honestly, that I could actually, in a, I don't know, a couple hour interview, I could probably get a good guess of that by interviewing people. But, you know, that's just me talking out of my butt. So don't believe the claims that dating sites make and reality TV shows make about their abilities to match make people. It is not demonstrated by science to work. And if you're looking for your soulmate out there, I recommend, according to science, look for someone who is equally socially desirable, however you determine that, and similar to you in values and background, because you're at a greater likelihood to be attracted to that person and at a greater likelihood to sustain a long-term relationship with that person. Also, and much more importantly than anything I've said so far, is go to therapy and cultivate secure attachments. So if all of us benefit by cultivating secure attachments, not only is it just its own reward because it feels great, but also, according to the research, it makes us more attractive to other people and it makes it easier for us to to sustain long-term relationships. We all come from difficulty in childhood. And we all have to recover from that. It's just par for the course. And so through, ther- through you know, you want to have what they call earned security. And so basically what we're talking about here is you're moving from insecure attachment style to secure attachment style. You're moving from undifferentiated to differentiated. You're moving from a, a highly triggered often and having a hard time regulating your emotions to being able to regulate your, your emotions fairly easily. And this is usually done through secure attachments that teach us deep down that we're lovable, that we matter, and that other people can be trusted and that other people are good with some bad qualities. We cultivate secure attachments in our families and our friends and our romantic relationships with our kids, with our parents. In lieu of that, we can also go to therapy and have a secure attachment with our therapist. And through that, we also will often heal and earn security by moving us closer to secure attachment style. And uh, because I know a lot of people out there have struggled with dating and have struggled with loneliness and I'm going to do a whole deep dive on loneliness soon. And interestingly, this scientific matchmaking episode will help inform that episode a little bit. Okay, so that does it for that deep dive on scientific matchmaking. What do you think? What's your experience with matchmaking? What's your experience with these online dating services? And, you know, not just your general experience, but do you think that these things work in terms of the science. What do you think of married at first sight? Do you think that those people, those experts are good at matchmaking people, or do you think they're not so good at it? Um, let me know. Email me, uh, go to psychologyinseattle.com, hit the contact button, and you can email me directly. I read all the emails. I might not respond to everyone because I'm getting a lot of emails lately. 
it makes it makes me sad that I can't respond to everyone anymore. And comment below if if you're watching this on YouTube. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really, really do. Thank you.